Turn in God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, be reading verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our arrogance when we suffer thinking that we've somehow merited ease and comfort all the way through. Father, forgive us that so often our suffering is for sin. Forgive us that we are so unwilling to suffer for the cause of Christ. And thank you for the grace that is in Him. And I pray for a mighty, transforming grace by your word to hearten us with faith and confidence to boldly do good, to be willing to suffer and be insulted for the name and the cause of Christ. In His name I pray. Amen. Most of man's suffering is, first, not for good. Second, a shock to us. It's not for good. And then, it's a shock to us. We eat the forbidden fruit, and we're shocked that we're driven from the garden. Though we do evil, we're not only surprised by suffering, we protest it. Why me, we ask. The best sermon we can preach to ourselves in such a moment is, why not? Suffering exposes our arrogance. We're not simply sinners. We're sinners with upturned noses. We come before the judge and we come before him as the kind of criminal that boasts of his exploits, defiantly daring him, do something. 
try. D.A. Carson exposes this well, recalling a 1988 shooting in a wealthy suburb of Chicago. He says the community was shocked. And so he rehearses some of the kind of thinking, the sentiment that underlied their shock. One, that sort of thing should only occur in black neighborhoods, in the slums, in the third world, or among drug addicts. It is outrageous that it should happen in decent, white, upper-middle-class suburban areas. He comments, Of course, no one was quite so crass as to put it this way, but that was the sentiment that perked along under some of the indignation. Two, I want to believe that my money can buy me security. I trust no one but myself and my resources. God is among the first I will blame if something goes amok. We turn our backs on God and pursue death. And yet, when suffering comes, we wonder, where is God and why don't I have life? Three, the death of my child is far more important than the deaths by starvation of hundreds of children in Eastern and Central Africa every week. Understandably, proximity and relationship do relate to the depth of our grief. And he admits that a lot of these sentiments that he's kind of reading into do expose simply that kind of grief. But nonetheless, there is in that the same kind of arrogance that we've seen in the statements before. As though, because we are who we are, there should be some sort of earned or understood immunity from suffering. Fourth, any notion of radical evil of a fallen world, must be qualified by how good I am. I'm good, and so how can these things happen in the world? We are victims and never culprits. Whenever we write the story, we're always the hero, never the bad guy. We can't even conceive of ourselves as accomplices in the evil of this world to the smallest degree. We interpret the world in light of this false view of ourselves. I'm good, and so we're shocked by evil that's out there. Five. Among those who were religious, the prayers offered for protection had to do, most, uh, uh, had to do almost exclusively with physical safety, property, and material well-being. Dia Carson comments, We want security. We want it desperately but has very little to do with the security of belonging to God. Everything else is quite negotiable. Carson admits that these are the sentiments of a largely unbelieving populace, but I don't think they're alien to the church in any measure. We worship Baal. Oh, we call him Yahweh. But we want our festivity. We want our style. We worship Baal and we wonder why Yahweh is so displeased. We reach for the forbidden cookie and are disgusted that we receive a slap on the hand instead of two cookies. We disobey and yet we expect reward. Now, for the Pharisees among us, living oh so righteously, Our pride is evident in that we think we should be immune from that which our Lord Himself suffered. 
Peter wants us to do, uh, display the exact opposite kind of behavior here. To do good and rejoice in suffering. Not to do evil and then be shocked by it, but to do good and rejoice in trials. Peter sets before us two pairs of not but contrast, as it were. The first, in verses 12 through 13, we are not to be surprised by suffering, but rejoice in it. The second, verses 15 and 16, we're not to suffer as the wicked, but as Christians. And following these pairs, he provides some grounding, some, some reasoning why. And then finally, in verse 19, he gives a concluding exhortation that's rooted in these truths. So one, not surprised by, but rejoicing in suffering. The, the saints, verse 12, shouldn't be surprised by suffering as though it were something strange. Suffering isn't strange. It's not strange, one, because we're sinners. In Adam, we sinned, we fell, we're counted guilty. In Adam, we are sinners. Because of Adam, man and creation were cursed. The surprising thing is not that we suffer. The surprising thing is that we don't suffer more. The surprising thing is not that men suffer on earth. The surprising thing is that mankind is not all of us, every one of us right now suffering in hell. Every step short of that is a surprise of grace and long-suffering and patience from the hand of God. It's not the curse, but blessing that's surprising. It is not death, but the hope of life that is surprising. It is not sorrow, but joy that is surprising. It is not judgment, but grace that is surprising. Suffering isn't strange because second... It's not only expected in Adam, it's promised in Christ. To the saints, to those who are in Christ, suffering's not only the expectation, the lot you should expect in Adam, it's a promise in Christ. Concerning suffering for good in 2.21, Peter told us, For to this, to suffering for good, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in a steps. In John 16, Jesus said, In this world you will have, speaking to his disciples, not to the wicked, to his people, that he's redeemed and saved by grace. In this world you will have tribulation. And then Paul in Acts tells us that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Much of the saint's suffering is simply due to the fact that we still reside on this cursed crust, this side of, of the renewal of all things and these bodies that have not yet been completely redeemed. But third, suffering shouldn't be strange to us because in conjunction with that, this world is still in rebellion to the Christ that we have come to bow to. We shouldn't think suffering strange because now we're strange. Because of Christ and His salvation, we're strange. We're aliens, we're exiles, we're sojourners. Suffering is expected, it's our lot. R.C. Sproul writes, There's a special kind of phobia from which we all suffer. 
It's called xenophobia. Xenophobia is a fear and sometimes a hatred of strangers or foreigners or of anything that is strange or foreign. God is the ultimate object of our xenophobia. He's the ultimate stranger. He's the ultimate foreigner. He is holy and we are not. Sinners have a sinful fear of the holy, the strange. Jesus said, this is judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Jesus was God's holiness come too close for comfort. And so we killed him. Or praise God, we tried to. By God's mercy, we've been remade in Christ. We're being conformed to His image. And, and, and as a result of this, we are, chapter 2, verse 9, a holy nation. We're holy, we're distinct, we're separate, we're strange. We bear the image of our Lord. This image which this world hated. And our Lord taught, John 5, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And so, the Apostle John echoes this in his letter in 1 John 5. Do not be surprised. Brothers, that the world hates you. Fourth, we shouldn't think trials, suffering, strange, as we consider God's purpose in them. Here, Peter speaks of our suffering as a fiery trial. Now, why does Peter use that language? A fiery trial. Well, the word test tells you when it comes upon you to test you. This is the language of metal being tested or proved, or refined through the fire. In Isaiah 48.10, God tells His people, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Such trials not only refine us as gold, they add to the wealth of our inheritance in Christ. You remember Peter in the opening chapter of this letter said, In this, speaking of our full and ultimate salvation, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. Necessary in what way? As testing, proving, refining. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, that this tested faith 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So do you see that suffering isn't strange, isn't strange, isn't strange, isn't strange, so don't be surprised by it. But beyond not being surprised, Peter calls for us, verse 13, to rejoice in such trials. Rejoice because whenever you suffer for good, that's been the admonition. Don't suffer for evil, suffer for good. Whenever you suffer for good, you share in Christ's sufferings. That takes you back to 121 about following in His steps. They, they are so much in His steps that they are reckoned His sufferings. Paul uses even more jolting language, perhaps, to get this across in Colossians. Speaking of his personal trials, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, neither Paul nor Peter intend to communicate that Christ's sufferings are lacking in any salvific, redemptive way. The point is that we, as the body of Christ, do not suffer alone. You are in union with Christ. He is the head. You are the body. They hate us because they hate Him. Their anger is aimed toward the head, but they can't strike the exalted head as He stands at the right hand of the Father. Jesus cannot suffer in that sense anymore, but they can aim at the body. When Jesus is the reason you suffer, you share in His sufferings. Saints, take heart. Your suffering, the Bible counts as Christ's own. Our salvation is this, that Christ suffered for us. But hear this solace. Christ, the righteous one, suffered for you. But here he tells his people that he counts your sufferings for righteousness as his sufferings. We share in them. The word insofar suggests a correlation. A further correlation, the clear correlation is that we're to rejoice insofar the NAS has to the degree that you share in Christ's sufferings. So the more that you share in the sufferings, the more you should rejoice. But there's an implication that there's another correlation. That you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Rejoice whenever you have opportunity now so that you can rejoice then when His glory is revealed. Rejoice as you share in His sufferings so that you might rejoice as you share in His glory. Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul speaks of the same correlation in Romans 8 telling us that we're heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. He opens his letter the second letter to the Corinthians telling them, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And he goes on in that letter to say, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. 
Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see the degree there, the correlation. The suffering is preparing the glory. As Peter said earlier, these trials will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. They're preparing this for us as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Peter has already unfolded something of the glory that we share in in 3.18-22 through 22, whenever he speaks of the resurrected, vindicated, and exalted Christ at the right hand of the Father with all enemies put under His feet. And one day that glory will be manifest. Now you share in His sufferings. On that day, you will share in His glory. And so whenever you have opportunity to suffer for the cause of Christ, rejoice now in them with the knowledge of how you will rejoice in sharing in His glory on that day. And so, whenever we are insulted, verse 14, for the name of Christ, we're blessed. Zedman Clowney says in this way, promises are not a threat. Uh, excuse me, suffering is not a threat. It's a promise. Suffering is not a threat. It's a promise. Peter's no doubt in this recalling the words of our Lord whenever he spoke to his disciples on the mountain. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, whereas verse 13 spoke of that future glory, that you may be glad when His glory is revealed, verse 13. Verse 14 speaks of a present reality. You're blessed. Why are you blessed? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The shocking language just continues. This is the same language that's used in Isaiah chapter 11 where it speaks about that shoot coming from the stump of Jesse, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that the Spirit is upon, and it speaks of the Spirit resting upon him. And here you're told that the Spirit rests upon you. So consider as the Christ comes up out of the waters of baptism and the Spirit descends upon him, empowering him for this ministry in which he will suffer and be hated. And this is also the spirit that we've seen is the spirit by which Christ was vindicated and resurrected and come into His glory. And the very spirit of glory. Remember, whenever you're born again, you're already partaking of that resurrection glory as that dead heart becomes living and you're a new creation. You're already partaking of that future glory to some extent. And whenever you suffer for the cause of Christ, 
There's this special promise that the spirit of glory, the spirit of Christ's resurrection glory that you will come to share on, in that moment, it rests upon you, empowering you for that ministry to make much of Christ. Now note that the suffering that Peter is most often referenced as a suffering for good throughout this book, note that at this point it becomes clear that it is an explicitly, thoroughly Christian suffering. It's not suffering for good as, as man in and of himself would define it. Not good in that sense, good as God defines it. It is a Christian suffering, verse 13, you share in Christ's sufferings. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, not all suffering should be rejoiced in. Some suffering should move us to sorrow and repentance. And then you can rejoice in God's work through the trial and the suffering to bring you to Repentance, But you can't rejoice in the trial itself in the way that's being called for here. So it is that Peter would have us not to suffer for evil, specifically as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, verse 15. Now the first two are clearly crimes punishable by the state, theft and murder. The next word that you have, evildoer, can be translated, and is by the Amplified in the NIV, can be translated as criminal. Now, the fourth term is a bit of a riddle. It's hard to say because this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. There's no usage of it in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. There's no usage of it in any prior Greek literature to this. So we're really kind of at a loss as to exactly what Peter intends. But this could also have that connotation from, from some investigation that it could mean also crime uh, that, that would be punishable by the state. A, a meddler is someone dealing with business that's not their own, involved in the affairs of the state that they shouldn't be touching on. And so all four of these could have this aspect of criminal acts as viewed by the state. And so remember that Peter's called for us to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, chapter 2 and verse 12. And he immediately follows that with saying, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I think that's actually Peter's intent here. He's telling us, whenever you suffer, don't let it be because the state is prosecuting your evil. Let it be that they're persecuting your good. Not prosecuting your evil legitimately but persecuting your good illegitimately. Whenever you are suffering, any, for, for whenever suffering and sin are involved, make sure that the sin is on the part of those inflicting upon you and not your part for having justly deserved it. When we suffer, we're to suffer righteously and for righteousness' sake. That is distinctly Christian suffering. That's what we're being called to in this letter. And whenever that is so, we should feel no shame. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Now, we're preachers of the damnable prosperity gospel 
abound, wherever their influence holds sway, there is shame anywhere they're suffering. Because if you're poor, if you're sick, if you're suffering, here's the problem, your lack of faith. If you are suffering in any way, save for sin, hold your head high. Suffer righteously and suffer with faith, knowing that God will make all things new. If you suffer for righteousness, wear that mockery like a crown. Despise their shame. Shame their shame. If you walk to the gallows for your faith, walk to those gallows the way Christ did to the cross, Hebrews 12.2. Despising the shame for the joy that was set before Him. Whenever the world says, you're narrow, insist that you're narrow because Christ is broad. You're narrow because He is Lord of all. There is no other. Insist that Jesus' salvation is exclusive. You can't have it anywhere else because His Lordship is all-inclusive. There's no other you can look to. Now, punishment is meant to shame. 3.16, whenever God punishes the wicked, they will be shamed. But whenever this world tries to shame us, we need to remember who the ultimate judge and writer of reality is. Whenever they try to shame us for righteousness, they're trying to call circles squares. Whenever they try to shame us for Christ's sake, they're acting against the script. This is why the disciples, after they were beaten, could leave the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Acts 5.41 They rejoiced that they were dishonored. They counted the dishonor of the council an honor. Whenever some people insult you, it's really a compliment. Whenever some people insult you, it's really a compliment. Whenever the Gentiles try to insult you for the name of Christ, that's the highest compliment they could give you. Now, why is it that Peter wants us to suffer as Christians and not as the wicked besides the obvious reasons that we're seeing? What's he focusing on, really? What's his intent? If we're going to suffer on this earth, if we're going to suffer, why not suffer for my will instead of God's will? Verse 17, his answer is, Judgment. Why suffer as a Christian instead of as an evildoer? For, because it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. There are clearly two kinds of judgment here, two outcomes. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Two judgments, two parties, Two outcomes. But there is a judgment for the saints. Remember 117, we were warned, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. God's judgment begins at his house. 
This is household here, his family, his house. This goes back to that, those living stones spoken of in chapter 2. Christ is the cornerstone of this spiritual temple, and we're living stones, and judgment begins with this house. This is not a judgment of condemnation. It is a judgment of purification. The judgment spoken of here are the very sufferings that Peter's been unfolding in this book. They're meant to test and to prove and to refine. Nothing here is contrary to what Jesus said in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The judgment spoken of there is one of condemnation, damnation. Whoever believes and trusts abandons themselves in faith in Christ that He is their righteousness, that He's dealt with their sins. They are imputed and counted righteous in Christ. No condemnation. But there is a judgment. A grace of judgment. A purification. It's akin to the chastisement spoken of in Hebrews 12. If you are not chastened, the author tells us, you are a bastard, an illegitimate son. You're no heir. You're not a son. If you're left without chastisement, you are no son. And so likewise, if there's no mark of purification, of trial, of suffering... Ask yourself, am I really part of God's house? What is Peter's point in this? If the righteous are not spared suffering in this life, what will be the outcome for the wicked in the next? prove this point, he goes to Proverbs 11.31. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, the point isn't that it's really hard for God to save a soul. And this relates to Jesus' words in Matthew 7 when he said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter, enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. It's a pilgrim's way. It's a sojourner's way. The way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. This is why we should be earnest to ensure that whenever we suffer, we suffer as Christians. That it be for righteousness' sake. That it be righteously. And if you do not suffer for righteousness in this life, perhaps it will be because you suffer as the wicked in the next. And so therefore, these things being so, verse 19, therefore, 
for those who suffer according to God's will, for those who are suffering uh, for this planned judgment, this fiery trial of purification, for the purposes of our eternal blessedness, for those who suffer according to God's will, hear this admonition. Very simple. Trust Him. Trust Him. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls. Trust Him. Remember, when our Lord suffered, chapter 2, verse 23, He did so entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Whenever you suffer for righteousness' sake, recognize that the only kind of judgment you face is one of purification because he judges justly. Judgment fell upon Christ for your sins. They're dealt with. Jesus suffered, chapter 3, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God's judgment worked for you if you trust in Christ. And it will work for you again Trusting in Christ. Because everything you suffer for His sake will be met on the part of the reprobate and sinners with judgment and on your part with blessing and reward. Trust Him. Specifically trust Him who is a faithful creator. Why does Peter speak of God in this way? It's all the more striking whenever you realize this is the only place in the New Testament where God is addressed as creator. There are other points in our English translations whenever the verbal form of this noun is used and it comes into our English translations as creator. But in the Greek, the only time God is addressed as creator in the New Testament is right here. Why so? I believe... Peter intends for us to think creator and correlate that with God's sovereignty. He's spoken of us as suffering according to God's will. The reason this is happening is because God has said it's necessary. He's said this is to be. He's the creator. He's Lord. He's sovereign. But you're not just to trust him as sovereign orchestrating all this but as a faithful sovereign, a faithful creator, that all this happens for your blessedness in Christ and all the promises that are found there. He's faithful to this. He's sovereign and He's faithful. Trust Him. I've seen it in your lives again and again and I can't tell you the kind of joy it brings me. I've said it this way. I can have no greater comfort as I shepherd your souls through trials than whenever I hear you say basically these two things in the midst of them. God is sovereign and God is good. And you've said this. He is a faithful creator. When you've said that, you're trusting Him in that. Don't be surprised Rejoice. Trust Him. The, the kind of rejoicing that's being called for here is a rejoicing of faith. Trust Him. Don't suffer as the wicked. Suffer 
as Christians for Christ's sake. Meaning, suffer trusting Him. Trust Him while doing good. The very good that will be the cause of your suffering. And you do it because you trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. May we welcome from your sovereign hand whatever purifying trials, whatever testing fire you may send our way, rejoicing in it, that we might rejoice in that day when your glory is revealed. Give us faith. And for those whose suffering is now nothing more than a hint in the slightest way possible of the eternal hell that they will face outside of you, Father, save them and grant them faith to trust you so that they'll never know that. They'll only know a trial that works for their good. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.